Hello and welcome to So You Think You Can Fanon. Please check the link tree in the description and see all of our beautiful, lovely, salacious links to listen to more. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the official announcement of So You Think You Can Fanon 10th edition, the only edition where we get rid of all the rules and replace it with um, Fortnite dances. I'm your host, Jake Workshop. Damn. Here was Sergio Ward. I'm Sergio I'm, uh, Ward and Matt Boutte Gilman. Oh, that works too, I guess. Well, well, well no, because Matt can just be can be the the Matt that works at the Games Workshop by our, by my university. Shout out to Matt from <laughs> Games Workshop Rochester. But you already you already replaced Matt Ward with Serge Serge Ward. Well, then, well, Matt can just That's be true. Matt. <laughs> Okay. Sure. I, I do have to ask uh, uh, Jake Workshop, can you still jelk in 10th edition? No. Are any changes no, being made to the, the Sean Saxon model? We actually replaced uh, jelking with sounding. Ah. Any any other questions? Did you enhance the sounding for the Slaanesh unit? Of course. Well, it's not enhanced because we just added it in for the first time ever. What is it does, as a mechanic? Yeah. D- does uh does Michael still get a um an attack bonus if you mention Pathfinder within five meters? Uh, me- inches. Inches. Thank yeah, you. Sorry. And it's uh it's six now. They're Speaking of six it. inches, we have the all guardsman party for you. I'm not sure how those two things correlate, but all right. Alright, today's chapter is Tiered Acquisition Experts. As you remember from the last time, they got a, a mission to go with uh, the Glup Shido Emperor's size. Not to be confused with the sides of the Emperor. The Emperor's size. We're a size. different group of Space Marines. Yes. yes. Blank Glup Shido chapter uh, to go grab a Tiered. So who wants to start? Because we're not going in Zencaster order. Or at least not... I'll start. Yeah, okay. And then Jacob, and then you. Gotcha. <clears throat> Interrogator Greg Sargent stood with his group of experts and contemplated the door. It was larger and fancier than any of the others in the hallway. It was also the only door that had been welded shut. The words Psyker holding cells could just barely be seen under the swaths of prayer seals that covered the door. Sarge shuddered at the memories those words dredged up and silently cursed whoever had decided to leave the damned section in during the shift refitting. And away from Sarge, Chief Engineer Old Bill and Senior Engineer Jim moved forwards. They ignored the official little yellow plaque, which promised a slow and painful death for anyone who opened the doors, and began cutting. At the back of the group, Senior Engineer Engine Seer Hannah and the ship's confessor explained why the door had been sealed to a worried-looking xenologist adept. When the xenologist started backing away and suggesting that he didn't really need to personally inspect the cells, Sarge cut in and assured him that the demon which had haunted the place was very, very thoroughly dead. Once the door was cut open, the confessor led the way inside with a censer in one hand and a flamer filled with holy promethium in the other. Sarge thought the priest seemed disappointed when nothing jumped out and tried to eat his soul. The confessor gave the all clear and the whole group trooped in and started assessing the cells. The main room 
was circular, filled with several pieces of arcane machinery, and was connected via very thick doors to a dozen child-sized holding cells. Eleven of those cells were open and looked exactly the same as when Sarge had last seen them. The twelfth did not. Instead of the ominously locked door he'd remembered, it was a jagged crater partially filled with debris from a half-collapsed ceiling. The delicate machinery immediately around the crater had been turned to scrap by door shrapnel, and a few clawed footprints could be seen in the wreckage. One by one, the technical experts reported their findings to the xenologist adept. Old Bill reported that the warp and shroud was missing a certain key component and would be barely functional. The xenologist asked if missing meant it might be found somewhere, and Sarge explained that in this case, it meant that the piece was welded to the warp drive. Old Bill recommended leaving that part where it was. Jim f- followed up that the news that the cell size suppressor had been ban- with, with the news that the cell size suppressor had been mainly damaged, but he was reasonably confident by, that by cannibalizing parts and reduce, reducing coverage, it could be gotten back up to eighty percent power. Jim refused to guess whether that was delta, epsilon, or lower level size suppression, citing his own lack of any idea how the damn thing worked. The xenologist winced at hearing this. Finally, Hannah reported that all 11 intact stasis units were in working order. The problem was that, unless the specimen was going to be child-sized, there'd be no way to fit in one. Putting in putting it half, aside, half inside a stasis field would result in a half-specimen. During to overlap the field, it would result in a rather large explosion, and, if there, were, and there was no mechanics-approved method for clutching multiple status units to a larger one. When the xenologist claimed that there was no way anything would work without a stasis field, Hannah begrudgingly admitted that Tink and his assistant might have some not entirely orthodox way of doing it sarge groaned at that but didn't actually say anything everyone went quiet as the adept digested the lackluster reports in the silence sarge noticed a faint sound coming from the degree the debris clogged cell a last pass a late a last pistol practically materialized in his hands and he motioned everyone to accept the well-armed confessor back As the two men carefully pushed aside the pieces of wreckage, the sound grew clearer. It was a sort of far-off chattering, screaming sound, mixed with what sounded like the thump of heavy crates being moved around, a familiar nasal voice talking to itself. Everyone in the room groaned, except for Sarge, who who thrust his head as far as he could into the wrecked cell and bellowed, God damn it, nubby! There was an articulate scream and the sound of several objects falling over. When the clattering died away, a plaintive, Bloody hell, Sarge, you doing down here? Drifted from somewhere in the rear of the cell. Sarge began ripping pieces of the wreckage uh, apart in an effort to find where the trooper was hiding. As he worked with the enraged non-com, embarked on what was sure to be an epic chewing out. What am I doing? What am I doing? What are you doing, you old idiot? And why in the Emperor's name are you doing it in the Psyker holding cells? Nubby's tongue grew panicked as he registered Sarge's fusion. I ain't doing nothing. Ain't you made me promise not to go anywhere near your stupid cells. I'm just minding my own business at the bottom of the lifts. This gave Sarge pause, and in the silence, the fate chattering, screaming. He'd been hearing under Nubby's voice finally registered. Sarge groaned and the real resistance hit him. The confessor, who didn't know Nubby quite well, asked if he was in the chapel of the Emperor, located in the deck below the lift of the bridge. Nubby's hesitant reply of Sorda was cut off by Sarge. Nubby, are you using the containment area inside the chapel, the one we built around the unholy screaming crater the Cogtain left when he died, to store contraband? No? Really, Nubby? Well, not the contraband, per se, just like odds and ends. God damn it, Nubby! It's not like anyone was using it. 
While Sarge and the Confessor both sputtered in a mix of horror and frustration, Jim raised the question of how the conversation was actually happening. Sarge couldn't see anything through the gaps in the debris besides the cell's rear wall. He grudgingly ordered Nubby to search the containment room for any sort of communicator or portal. Nubby followed their voices and reported the glowing crater left by the dead Cogton as the source. He hesitantly asked if glowing metal could be a portal and if he should try poking it with something. Sarge's answer was drowned out by a screeching flood of demonic and binary screaming. The noise rose a crescendo as the far wall of the cell started glowing and a jagged length of metal poked through. The blade flailed around like a snake stuck in a hole and slowly hauled something that looked like a cross between a las gun's barrel and a demonic skull out behind it. Sarge leapt aside as the confessor ran forwards and hosed the back of the cell with sanctified Prometheum. When the noise finally died down, Nubby's voice returned and asked if anyone had seen where his lasgun had gone after the metal ate it. Sarge told him it was probably time to get a new gun from Tink and ordered the trooper to return to his quarters immediately without any of his origin end. As the faint sound of Nubby's metal footsteps and curses faded away, Sarge turned to where the xenologist was trying to hide behind old Bill. Right. We'll worry about that later. Back to why we're actually down here. You heard the reports. Do you think we can do it? Matt, do you want to be the other voice? Okay. Just to be clear. Yes. We have a psycho containment area with almost no warp presence shrouding, an indeterminate amount of size suppression, and a stasis field that'll be clutched together from smaller units by that mad Xenos you've got hiding in your quarters. Uh-huh. And you're asking me if we can use this area, which is already so tainted that it's manifesting major phenomena to hold a live Tyranid zoanthrope for a month-long warp voyage? That's right. It's quite literally the worst idea I've ever heard! The All Guardsmen Party, Tyranid Acquisition Experts. So no shit. There we were, heading out beyond the... the beyond the fringes of Imperial space to capture a Xenosyker, which we would then have to haul kicking and screaming halfway across the galaxy. There were probably shittier missions out there, but that wasn't much comfort. Saying it could always be worse loses its charm when things actually do keep getting worse. The only thing that kept us from labeling it as a suicide mission was the fact that a force from the Emperor's side Space Marines chapter would be leading the actual capture effort. In fact, it was technically their mission. We were just supposed to assist them in the capture, then handle the transport. The fact that we'd be working with and fighting alongside a team of Space Marines didn't actually make us any happier, though. I mean, sure, the Marines are the greatest warriors in all the Imperium. Near immortal demigods of war and all that, but we'd been in our share of battles. Every one of us had seen inevitably what happens when the Astartes get called in. Quickest way for a guardsman to meet the Emperor is to be anywhere near uh, a 10-kilometer radius of one of his angels. Sadly, the assignment had come directly from Inquisitor Oak, so there's nothing we could do to avoid it. No matter how insane the mission, no matter how bad our equipment, and how certain our deaths, there was nothing short of desertion that would get us out of our orders. So we went to work, preparing our equipment, and took solace in the most sacred right of all soldiers. Complaining. To start with, Tink complained about how unfair it was to stick him and Fio, our semi-captive Tau scientist, with so much to do in so little time. The two of them worked furiously on the problem of combining the smaller stasis units into a larger one while simultaneously trying to cram more pulse weapons into Lasgun disguises and build Spot 2.0. Their efforts were seriously hampered by the fact that Tau science isn't anywhere near as advanced when it comes to stasis fields, or anything related to Psychers for that matter, as it is on the subject of plasma on drone, or drones. 
Then on top of that, there was the whole heretical Xenotech on an Imperial vessel issue that we kept skirting around. The Xenotech problem wasn't as serious as it used to be, though. Replacing all of our annoying old cogboys with slightly less annoying young cogboys had resulted in far more liberal outlook on the ship's tech priesthood. Sarge still insisted on a more modern amount of discretion, though, which caused significant slowdowns, especially when combined with Jim's newfound stodginess as head cogboy. Mr. I'm a big boy now, head engineer Jim flat out insisted that none of the junior tech priests were allowed to even work in the same room as Theo, much less lend a mechadendrite. We sort of understood that it was all for the safety of the acolytes, who might get in very deep trouble if they displayed bad habits in their future postings, but it slowed things down considerably. Tink wound up drafting Sarge and most of the adepts as assistants. None of them were very helpful, mind you, but the fact that they were suffering with him cheered Tink up immensely. Jim, Hannah, and old Bill did their fair share of complaining, too. The projects they were working on weren't much easier than Tink's, and they were also trying to keep the ship running and train their new recruits. In the long run, the fresh batch of cogboys probably was probably going to work out wonderfully. I keep losing my spot. What is happening to me? They put goo in my eyes, and now my eyes don't work. But in the, in the short term, it was complete mayhem. Hannah had it especially bad that she was the one in charge of the newbies while the others ran their projects. She was driven to the edge of hysterics by a constant barrage of questions and problems, ranging from trivial ones to potentially fatal from the acolytes. The poor cog girl had hid them in our barracks more than or hid from them in our barracks more than once. While the technical folks whined over about overwork, Doc fumbled and the xenologist adept complained to anyone who would listen to them about being used as human guinea pigs. Really, all of them understood that there were no other options for testers and the containment field had to be tested. They all hated the fact that said testing consisted of the xenologist coaxing fungbles into trying to manifest the sort of powers a zoanthrope might use. <coughs> well, Doc stood around and waited to fix whatever went wrong. And when you combine fumble trying to use powers outside his comfort zone, a high stress environment, and the and the quality of the, of the containment area, you better believe things went wrong. At least Doc did get a lot of practice fixing in, in uh, fixing up injured cogboys, so there was some silver lining. The only members who of the team who weren't involved in the preparing of the containment area were Nubby, Twitch, and Amy. Of course, they didn't let that stand in the way of bitterly complaining. In fact, they used their free time to complain harder. The three of them wandered around the ship on their patrol of the tainted areas, looking for warp phenomena and daemon incursions, while whining to each other about their sorry lot. Nubby had a whole slew of grievances, mostly with Sarge. The chewing out he received for appropriating the Screamy Crater room as a warehouse was minor compared to the one he'd got when he when he went back in there. Originally, he'd only intended to clear out a stash, but then Tink and Theo had requested he run a few experiments. For science, they'd said. Nubby felt it was entirely unfair that he'd received all the blame for the incident with the crater and the rat. Anyway, the mutated rodent actually hadn't hurt anyone. It had just tasted tech acolyte around for a while and then spontaneously combusted so nubby grumbled continuously about how unreasonable sarge had gotten since his promotion and the fact that he wasn't even allowed to hang out with fumbles during tests on account of being disruptive to the work environment twitch had been driven to a significantly higher than usual level of paranoia by the news that he'd be sharing with the ship with a tyranid this was compounded by the ban on indiscriminate booby traps that sarge had enacted after several of the acolytes had gotten themselves injured the cherry on top and primary focus with twitch's complaints was the fact that doc had refused 
to move back into the barracks after his legs had finished healing. Doc claimed his preference for sharing quarters with his hospitaler girlfriend wasn't a slander on the quality of Twitch's defenses, but the demolitions trooper didn't buy it. He interpreted the decision in the same way he did most things, as a complex conspiracy to make him unhappy. Finally, bringing up the rear of the little parade of misanthropy was Amy, who had perhaps the pettiest gripe of all of us. Her hair was messed up. Doc's girlfriend had done a wonderful job of repairing the second set of facial burns our Mark's woman had received, and she'd used some special hospitaler trick to repair Amy's scalp, too. Unfortunately, Amy was completely fixated in the fact that the treatment had left a hand-wide stripe of pure white running through her now buzz-cut hair. None of us really knew why she cared so damn much. Amy hadn't been particularly vain in the past. It was odd that this specific thing loomed so large. Perhaps it was because Nubby had the poor face to say it made her look like a skunk. The three troopers shared the displeasure with just about everything they ran into, whether it was a minor warp beastie, mutant, crutoid, or newbie tech priest. Amy particularly took grim delight in asking every acolyte she saw if they thought her hair looked funny, then doing very mean things to anyone who gave the wrong answer. It wasn't a right one. By the time we were nearing our rendezvous, their antics, as well as the rest of the team's general attitude, had reached such a level that the captain actually took personal notice. It took a bit of work for Sarge to placate, 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 placate the captain, even though the man was ex-Navy and should have automatically understood the situation. Sarge didn't have any trouble getting across that most of our squad had an entirely or especially strong dislike for fighting Tyranids, and Psychers for that matter. The problem was that morale is a far different thing on a ship than in a trench, so the captain didn't see why that excused our behavior. Sarge eventually managed to explain that while veteran guardsmen can handle just about anything on the battlefield, they have relatively few coping mechanisms for dealing with slowly impending doom. He asked if the captain would prefer to have a staggering around blind drunk or taking on a more proactive approach to staying alive. The captain agreed that a bit of complaining and misbehavior was better than Twitch manufacturing manufacturing reason for why we couldn't complete the mission. In the end, Sarge promised that we'd be ready for action when the time came, and all quietly hoped like hell that he was telling the truth. Luckily, it turned out that he was. On the final day of our warp travel, everything started coming together. The first break was when Tank and Fio successfully managed to put the largest servitor on the ship into stasis. Actually, it was originally the second largest servitor, but the overlapping field had gotten out of sync on the previous test and messily rearranged that hierarchy. Anyways, the test was such a resounding success that they hauled the whole thing down to the cells and crammed fumbles into it before anyone could stop them. Aside from how long it took them to get to safety, you get our psyker back out of there. Or, sorry, aside from how long it, take, it took them to safely get our psyker back out of there, the live test went perfectly. Fumble's aura completely vanished when the field was activated, and everyone in the in the cells cheered. Even Jim seemed happy, despite the way he was chivying his acolytes out of the room, explaining that they were definitely not seeing a Tau or a techno-heretical stasis device. The news that we'd be transporting a stasisid uh Tyranid Psyker, as opposed to the one that was actively trying to kill us, perked everyone up. All of us set aside our little distracting grievances as our warp, warp voyage ended. Well, except for Amy. And Twitch, that is. The demolition trooper's behavior wasn't surprising, but the fact that Amy had to be restrained from beating Nubby to death with the bottle of hair dye that, she'd, uh, that he acquired for her was worrying. Fortunately, neither of their obsessions prevented them from prepping for battle, and everyone was ready to kick some ass when we finally reached our destination. I say, when I say we were ready for action, I meant it. We were literally standing in the shuttle bay when the occurrence border came out of warp. 
the Space Marines weren't going to catch us sitting around and asking for five more minutes before the mission. No siree. So it was sort of awkward when there wasn't anyone at the rendezvous. We stood in the bay for an hour before we gave up in disgust, while the rest of us wandered off muttering blasphemous remarks about the Emperor's angels of death and their idea of punctuality as we did so. Sarge headed up to the bridge to see what the hell was going on. We'd really expected to find the Marines there ahead of us. It's not like we had a very fast ship. We'd even entertained the faint hope they'd already had the zoanthrope tied up and ready for us. Either way, it would be a matter of in and out before the nids even realized we were there. At least that's what we hoped. It was a rather unsettling to find ourselves sitting absolutely alone at the far edge of a hostile system. It didn't even stay unsettling for long, though. When we took a look around and saw just how hostile the system was, we bumped the situation up to outright terrifying. Now, we'd all read Oak's orders. It was obvious that the system would be a battleground. Not even Marines are suicide enough to try this sort of thing in a wholly Tyranid-controlled system. None of us had been optimistic enough to bet on finding a system that was being cleansed by a massive Imperial fleet, but we'd hoped that our destination would be, well, some Imperial frontier world that just wasn't on our maps. Preferably one that had just been reinforced by a few regiments of guard and was fighting off a very small splinter fleet. Of course, if we couldn't get a world with more guardsmen than Nids, we'd have more than happily settled for any Imperial presence, regardless of how many bugs there were. Hell, we would have been happy with one of those weird independent systems you got out here, or even a Tau world, as long as they were busy with the fucking Nids. Always really wanted a system where the fight was sort of even, and one side wouldn't be shooting at us. Instead, what we saw when the Occurrence Border scanners came online was four planets, four hive ships, and thousands, if not millions, of far smaller ships. Closer inspection revealed that the little vessels were inorganic, that they were attacking the hive ships with mixed success. Sarge left the bridge shortly after the first detailed scans came in. Sarge came down and gave us the bad news. It was something we needed to know after all, but he took the precaution of stopping at the med bay on the way down. Even with the heavy trank and the hospitaler's help, which nearly managed to escape into the ship's pipework before Sarge finished telling us about the little ships. They hadn't been imperial or TAL fighters, or even freaking Eldar for that matter. Every single one of the smaller crafts had been a ramshackle contraption held together by a combination of spit, red paint, and a complete refusal to understand or even acknowledge the laws of fucking physics. God damn it. Why did it have to be orcs? The current border spent the next few days being as still and quiet as it possibly could. Meanwhile, everyone inside of it, Ran around in frenzy of, prepar- of preparation that are that put our earlier efforts to shame, to shame, 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 shame. None of it was directed towards improving the zone pro- zone throat containment area anymore, though. Instead, it was all focused on keeping us alive long enough to capture the bloody thing. Armsmen drilled on repelling borders. The ship's lances were brought up to as close to functional as they'd ever been, and Tink finished getting everyone equipped with pulse weapons while Theo put the final touches on Spot 2.0. The rest of us trained with our new weapons and kept Twitch from doing anything crazier than usual. On the third day, we were all called up to the bridge by the captain. Well, actually, only Sarge and the Adepts were called, but the rest of us were tired of all the horrible waiting. A very brief message telling us to hold the position and wait for secure comms contact was replayed for us. The captain told us that he hadn't seen any other vessels enter the system and didn't even have a hard source for the calm message, just a vague direction. That was rather disturbing, but no one except Twitch could figure out a way it could be a trap. The captain and Sarge decided to wait and see what happened next. After half an hour, another message came in. An incredibly deep voice that practically screamed Space Marines identified itself as Sergeant Gra- Gravis. Gravis? Alright guys, vote. Gravis or Gravis? 
Hmm, Gravis. Gravis? All right, Sergeant Gravis of the Emperor's Scythe, and instructed us to lower our shields so he could dock. As the captain did so, Sarge squared his shoulders and picked up the Vox's headset, only to have the officer manning it tell him that we still didn't have a target for a secure channel. The man asked Sarge if he should just broadcast generally, and Sarge agreed. He got about halfway through introducing himself before the Marine Vox back, and told him to cease broadcasting before he alerted the whole system. Sarge sheepishly hung up the Vox and vented some frustration by asking the communications officer what he meant by still didn't have a target. It was quickly revealed that the sensor still hadn't detected the Marine ship, despite it being close enough to worry about docking. The sensor's text claimed that the incoming ship must be shuttle-sized and must have some good stealth systems, but they were sure to spot it when it requested final docking instructions. Tink, not very quietly, suggested instead of the marine ship being stealthy, that the tech systems were just complete shit. He then volunteered to have them upgrade to modern standards after the mission. The ensuing argument was brought to a halt by the marine boxing again and telling us to reactivate our shields and close the shuttle bay doors. While most of us laughed at the sensor techs for not spotting a ship before it landed on us, Doc raised the question of where the Marines had landed. We hadn't actually opened any bays yet, unsurprisingly, given that they were the ones who patrolled the ship the most. Nubby and Twitch figured it out first. Both troopers screamed at Sarge to stop uh, the Marine. Sarge and the captain both caught on to what had happened at the same moment that the techs pinpointed the Marine ship in the foremost bay on top of the occurrence border, the one in the badly warped tainted area near the prow, which was left open and airless at all times and was never to be used. The two normally stoic men frantically ran towards the communication officer and screamed at him to open a channel. In the background, a confused sounding comment came in from the Marine, asking why everything was so green and why there was a crewman without a void suit in the airless bay. Sarge won the sprint and had the Vox halfway to his mouth when the Marines' confused questions changed to reports of incoming hostiles. Despite everything that happened afterwards, Sarge's reaction was about as perfect as was possible. In his best non-com voice, he bellowed at the Marine to disengage and pull his shuttle out of the bay. I'm not sure if you're familiar with how big and loud a Space Marine's voice is, but overriding one via pure volume and vitriol is a feat worthy of legend. Every time the Marine tried to argue or ask for clarification, Sarge just shouted over him in that parade ground voice he'd spent his entire life perfecting. This is probably him rolling, like, as high as he possibly could. It was working, and everything might have turned out fine. If there hadn't been a second Marine, that is, the other Astartes, who'd been spared the full brunt of Sarge's wrath, cut in and asked his battle brother if he'd tarnished the chapter's honor by running like a squad of guardsmen without a commissar. The first Marine rallied and announced his intention to enter the bay and deal with the hostiles that were evading his shuttle's weapons. Sarge switched tactics and frantically tried to explain that there weren't any enemies and opening the airlock would let the warped fungus in, but dissolved into furious cursing when he heard the, the shuttle's lock cycle. With a final growl of, this isn't a battle, you idiot, it's sanitation, you're going to get yourself killed fighting fungus, he handed the box unit over to Doc and the adepts. Doc and everyone else with more charisma than a dead fielded, slowly explained the situation to the Marine that hadn't just contaminated himself. The rest of us just stood there and listened to the sound of a space marine trying to kill Xenos that miraculously seemed to dodge every shot. Nubby and Amy started placing bets on how long it would be before the warp fungus, as we called it, ate through the marine's power armor and whether the marine would even be able to notice. No one gave him good odds. We all knew just how nasty the warp fungus could get. Hell, it'd been some of us who'd first discovered the crap. Standard operating procedure in the occurrence border was to just seal off any warp-tainted sections with nothing important inside. The lack of anything living to mess with kept the number of manifestations to a minimum, and anything that did appear usually faded before it could claw through the sealed, bulk sealed bulkheads. Occasionally, though, something nastier than usual would appear and need dealing with. 
Nubby, Twitch, Fumbles, and recently Amy spent a lot of time watching signs of this sort of stuff and often got stuck with the job of fixing it. Anyways, the warp fungus was one of those nastier-than-usual things, but fixing it had been a bit of a problem. Fumbles had sort of heard it in the tainted shuttle bay months ago, back before we had reached the Tau border worlds, in fact. He made such a fuss about the psychic noise it was emitting that Nubby and Twitch had agreed to risk a recon mission into the bay between warp jumps. They'd run in, pinpointed a large container labeled Potato Substitute 15 Tons as the source of the noise. Because they were relatively savvy with how this sort of thing worked, they declined to actually open the container and just solved the problem the same way they solved most of the others, which is to say they covered it in dead packs. Well, at the time they declared a victory when the explosion went off and the psychic noise stopped, but in retrospect, that had only s- uh, served to spread the fungus all over the bay. Uh, when the no- while the noise had returned, pa- the patrolling armsmen began reporting strange sounds and disappearing and then other armsmen reported hearing or seeing missing ones. Over a dozen had vanished into the bay before Nubby and the rest took a second look. They found it covered with the fungus, which was in, process of, in the process of dissolving everything less sturdy than the base blast-proof outer doors and walls. Also, it was filled with the missing armsmen, who were beckoning them inwards. Nubby, Fumbles, and Twitch had immediately shut the door and ran for it. As they fled, a horde of orcs, gene stealers, and a few other variety of Xenos appeared at the end of the hall and blocked their escape. Fortunately, Fumbles was along and realized that the new enemies were some sort of psychic illusion. The psyker was able to dispel the illusion without anything more serious than temporary reversal of gravity happening, and the debatably heroic trio escaped. There had been a few attempts to kill off the warp fungus after that. Unfortunately, between its caustic nature, the hallucinations, and the fact that it was hellishly hard to kill, all that was accomplished was getting a few more armsmen and a whole lot of servitors melted. Eventually, someone suggested just voiding the bay, then leaving it until the stuff died. That didn't actually work, but it did cause the stuff to go dormant unless something ventured into the bay. Since we didn't actually use the bay for anything, the captain had decided the problem was no longer pressing and we got back to our way. As a precaution, old Bill had reinforced a seal on the bay's doors and vents, and the only one allowed to go near it was one of the senior tech priests. The cowboy had some ideas about chemical sprayers deployed by servo skulls, and Jim had said he'd made some real progress, but the whole tech heresy thing had come up. Anyway, that's what the Space Marines had just landed in, a bay of psychically active, highly caustic, and incredibly hard to remove warp fungus. Honestly, though, it was still the third worst thing on the current border they could have landed in. Our ship was a little overdue for a tune-up. But before we get to the next one, Mm -hmm. we are going to go on an ad break. (gasps) We'll see you guys after the jump. Welcome back from the ad break, ladies and gentlemen. We are going to get right back into it through an absolutely heroic amount of persuasion. Doc and the adepts managed to convince the Marines to abandon the bay. The second Marine, who identified himself as Sergeant Rebus, turned out to be very susceptible to logical arguments. It even helped talk Sergeant Gravis around before the fungus was able to melt through his boots. We still didn't forgive him for screwing up Sarge's initial attempt, though, because even if Gravis was going to be fine, he'd cycled his shell's airlock twice in the warp fungus bay. There was no fucking way that bird wasn't contaminated to hell and back. We watched as not one, but two shuttles rose out of the bay. Neither of them looked anything like the Thunderhawks we'd expected when they told us we'd be working with Space Marines. Aside from being incredibly sleek, both of them were completely jet black and only visible because of our ship acting as a backdrop. One of them was definitely having a little trouble flying in a straight line, though, and showed up as a faint ghost on the sensor tech scopes. The other remained stubbornly invisible to all scanners as it settled in space in front of the bridge. 
the decontamination process was not fast. The sprayer skulls had to be found and refilled, the contaminated shelter had to be completely voided, and a holding area had to be set up. On top of that, the whole time this was going on, Sergeant Gravis and his shuttle's crew were, as Tink put it, tripping balls. Given how heavily armed they were, the situation was extremely very ultra-uncomfortable, but luckily no one was killed and only one sprayer skull was destroyed. After hours and hours of tedious cleaning, not to mention very angry shouting about whose fault this all was, our team met with the Space Marines in the Occurrence Borders' fanciest conference room. Our planning session was short, direct, and absolutely <laughs> terrifying. Um, those minis are sized of the Emperor and not Emperor's sides, so I don't know what the fuck. I don't know if this is supposed to be size of the Emperor or what. Boy, I sure hope somebody got fired for this blunder. No, no response. Okay, I'll just keep going. Sergeant Gravis and Rebus, uh. Of the Emperor's size, Space Marine chapters were not what you'd call socialites. In fact, they were even more aloof than the few Marines we'd met previously. They stomped into the conference room, still wearing their power armor, didn't even bother to remove their helmets. It was unnerving as hell talking to them, and Sarge couldn't hold on to his inquisitorial dignity in the face of those stares. Rebus did most of the talking, and started by explaining that there were two main objectives, and there would be two separate teams. The first team would consist of him and four scouts. The second team would consist of Sergeant Gravis and his two scouts, one of which would be piloting the shuttle, plus the interrogator sergeant and his five inquisitorial guardsmen. Sarge hesitantly asked if we'd need any support staff in the field. This triggered looks and looks of terror from Jim Hanna and all the adepts, but Reba said that they wouldn't be necessary. From the far end of the table, Fumbles held up his hand and asked if he was coming. The Marine considered this, and then asked if he was capable of using his powers while simultaneously fending off the hive mind's continuous psychic assault. Fumbles quietly put his hand back down. After waiting a few seconds to see if anyone else would interrupt, Reba started explaining what the two teams would be doing. Our team would go to the third planet in the system, then find and capture Zoanthrope. His team would destroy the hive ship orbiting it. Everyone in the room just sat there and stared at the Marines as Reba started explaining the trans transportation situation and timeline. Tank managed to overcome a shock before anyone else and loudly asked the Marines if they were insane slash a second adjective that describes similar things to insane that I can't say. Amy and Nubby snickered and Doc hastily clapped a hand over Tink's mouth. Sarge took a deep breath and asked Sergeant Rebus to explain why, and more importantly, how the Marines are, were going to destroy an entire Hyrnid hive ship. Rebus met Sarge's stare and said that his chapter's primary interest in the system was ensuring that the Tyranids did not overwhelm the orcs and form a new splinter fleet. Capturing a live Zoanthrope for the Inquisition was merely a side mission, a small favor to be completed when convenient. As for how his team would board the hide ship and destroy it from within, further details were not for those outside the chapter. All we needed to know was that the ship would die after we captured the Zoanthrope, but before their psi suppressants could wear off and allow the hive mind to destroy the beast. As this, everyone digested this, Twitch broke his remarkably long silence. The demolitions trooper volunteered that the Marines probably had a vortex bomb, since an explosive would merely scatter still-living pieces of ship across the planet. And a poison or virus would require a lot of sampling, plus a nearby laboratory. Both Marines glared at Twitch, who ignored them, and went back to fiddling with the mine he was holding. After some more awkward silence, Sergeant Rebus went back to explain the mission details. Both teams would deploy in his stealth shuttle, since the warp fungus had gotten into the control systems of Gravis's. 
first, we'd insert his team on the hive ship, and then could go down to the planet to capture the Zoanthrope. The occurrence border would follow us in on low power and stop at the edge of the hive ship's shadow, where it could easily warp out in an emergency. If our mission went quickly, we'd return it and drop off our prize before the shuttle was extracted. Rebi- oh, sorry, before the shuttle extracted Rebus's team. Otherwise, we'd pick them up on the way back. It slowly dawned on us that the Marines' plan called for us to sit as helpless passengers in a shuttle that would not only be carrying a notoriously unstable warp weapon, but would also be closing in on boarding range with a hive ship, even without the swarm of orc fighters attacking the ship, and the fact that we might make a second visit while that warp weapon was actually armed, it sounded incredibly dangerous. With them, not to mention the whole capturing a Xenocyker thing, it sounded downright fucking suicidal. While the rest of us silently panicked, Doc hesitantly asked if it would make more sense to uh, use both of the Marines' shuttles, Gravis, whose armor was sporting some truly impressive acid burns, glared at Doc and swore loud enough that we could hear him despite the fact that we didn't have his helmet he didn't have his helmet speakers on. He bitterly suggested that we should have thought of that before neglecting the maintenance of our ship's shuttle bays, and then fell back into his sullen silence. Doc soldiered on despite this rebuttal and asked whether the mission could be delayed until our tech priests fixed the fungus shuttle. Jim and Hannah made some panicked gestures which seemed to imply that they had no freaking idea how the stealth shuttle even worked, much less how to fix it. Rebus ignored them, gave Doc a simple no, and announced that the briefing was over. We'd be leaving as soon as the scouts finished transferring equipment to the shuttle and Gravis' field repairs were completed. One of Gravis's scouts would deliver our mission-critical gear and explain the capture procedure to us in the meantime. With that, the two Marines stomped out. One by one, the engine seers, adapts, and fumbles followed them, leaving only us guardsmen sitting there feeling like we'd lost all control of the situation. Hold on, I'm chewing. Matt. Okay. Improvise. You want me to read the next one? No, improvise while I chew. Uh, Jake facts. Jacob loves to eat yummy food in his belly. He loves it in his belly. It's so yummy. It's so yummy and so good. Okay, thank you. Now, we all... We, we'd felt out of our depth... Felt... We'd felt out of our depth before. Hell, that had been our default state of mind since the Inquisition drafted us. This was worse than usual, though. The Marines had left us feeling like children. It wasn't embarrassment over the shuttle thing. That was at least as much fault theirs as ours. It was just that we felt incredibly outclassed by the three-meter-tall killing machines. It was odd that the two Marines were so daunting, since, as Twitch pointed out, we'd actually killed three Chaos Space Marines during our missions. Doc suggested that the issue was that they were on our side. The ones we killed were vile traitors, deserving nothing, deserving of nothing with scorn and death, but these were two physical manifestations of the Emperor's divine wrath. Or to put it more simply, we couldn't compensate for our discomfort by trying to kill them. Twitch was halfway through suggesting that shooting the Marines just a little would make us feel better, when Gravis's scout came in. That was a very, very awkward moment, but the scout eventually accepted that it was just a little joke. None of us would even consider doing such a thing, and we certainly didn't dedicate large amounts of our time to planning com- complex betrayals of our allies. Well, unless they were Eldar, or tech priests, or deserters, or cultists, or heretics, or annoying interrogators, or commissars, rogue traders, rival inquisitorial teams, or people who thought who might be orcs in disguise. But since the marines and their scouts were none of these things, there was obviously nothing to worry about. Unless they really were orcs, they were much bigger and musclier than normal people after all. Sarge put a stop to Twitch's newest paranoid fantasy before it got started, and asked the scout what was in the crates on the pallet he was pushing. The scout eyed us all dubiously, 
and said it was our grav shoots. All of us digested the horrible implications of those two words and went quiet. Except for Nubby, that is, who was a little slower on the uptake. Grav watts? Shoots. Uh, what, what, what shoots? Grav shoots. What, what? Your guardsmen. You should know what grav shoots are. You know, small backpack-sized anti-gravity devices that allow Imperial troops to float safely to the ground on a column of anti-gravity force from any height in a world's gravity well, including suborbital heights. Oh! Oh, you mean screamy, folly death packs? Yeah, we'll be able to have those. What you doing with them? Because I know a guy who's a guy who knows a guy who knows another They're for you to deploy in the shuttle with. You said you just said you're familiar with them. Surely I don't need to draw you a picture. What? Are you mental? When I say familiar, I mean, we pulled a bunch of them off dead. None of us have ever used one. You can tell because we're not pancake-shaped. That's unfortunate. You have two hours to learn how to operate one. I'll assist in your training. Is there a nearby t- cargo bay or lift shaft we can use? Oh, the baby space man is trying to kill us all! Why is everyone always trying to kill us all? The best term for our training with the graph shoots was crash course. The scout marine had made sure our shoots were on, walked us to the edge of the shaft, and pushed us off. He claimed it was how he'd been trained, and the man evidently saw no reason why non-superhumans should learn any differently. Sarge didn't let anyone argue. There wasn't time. None of us enjoyed the experience of being thrown into a lift shaft with nothing but an underpowered anti-crab unit and a pair of tiny thrusters between us and pancakey death. It was hard to say who did the worst. It was a pretty much three-way tie. Doc had so little control that he got stuck on a light fixture and had to be rescued by the scout. The humiliation of being suspended by his pants halfway up the shaft was slightly overshadowed by the way the scout had just cut them off and insisted he keep practicing instead of getting a new pair. While the scout was busy with Doc's rescue, Tank decided that he could convert his chute into a full jump pack using some of the techniques he picked up working on his drone. It turned out he was wrong, so much, in fact, that he had to be issued the only spare chute. Of course, Tank immediately declared that he knew what he'd done wrong and started to retry the modifications using his replacement chute. Sarge had to take his tools away. Finally, Amy misinterpreted a suggestion to wear a helmet as a comment on her hair. She tried to deck the scout and found a Space Marine's jaw is a lot tougher than any non-augmented hand. Doc, still pantsless, checked the hand and said it wasn't broken, so Amy grumpily resumed her training. For his part, the scout Marine took the irrational attack in stride, but that was obviously the point where we'd lost the last of our credibility in his eyes. Despite all the difficulties in our teacher's absolute and utter disgust with us, we all managed to get down the shaft safely a few times before the training ended. We gathered up our gear, got Doc some new pants, and made our way to the bay where the unfungus stealth shuttle was being prepped. Once there, the scout marine brought out an impressively large sniper rifle and explained how the Zoanthrope's capture would work. We noticed that, unlike the previous lesson, this briefing consisted of nothing but short words and included a lot of hand gestures as well as a few pictures. None of us commented, but Amy and Tink were obviously taking note of every little implied insult. The gist of the plan was that the stealth shuttle would sweep over the battlefield until we saw Zoanthrope. The shuttle would fly over the target, and then everyone but the pilot would deploy via grav chute. From there, speed was the name of the game. The estimated mission length was 10 minutes if our insertion was undetected, and 3 if it was. If we took any longer, Tyranid reinforcements would freaking bury us. Our squad would secure a perimeter and hold it against any Tyranids that came to support the Zoanthrope, while Sergeant Gravis wore down the Xeno's psychic shield bubble thing. And once the shield was breached, the scout would shoot the Zoanthrope with a specially tailored sedative and psi suppressant, and then we'd all fall back to the nearest possible landing area for extraction. It was the complete opposite of all the horribly complex ops we'd suffered through since joining the Inquisition. 
it was the ultimate in simple, straightforward planning. If it wasn't for the fact that we'd be outnumbered literally thousands, if not millions to one, we would have fucking loved it. As it was, though, there is no word to describe how much we hated this plan. Honestly, all of us, even Sarge, would have bailed if the two Space Marines hadn't shown up. None of us had the nerve to refuse the Astartes, so we boarded the shuttle and headed off to our absolutely certain deaths. Oh my god, that's art of Uriel Ventress. Oh my god. Look at the look at the green shoulder pad and the sword. Oh my god. The shuttle trip into the system was amazingly unpleasant. It wasn't that the stealth shuttle was crowded. There was only 13 of us in it, or 15 if you counted the seats taken by Spot and the Vortex Bomb, and the seats themselves weren't that bad either. Sure, they were a little on the big side, but the Space Marines definitely spare a bit more budget for comfort when building a ship than the Guard does. So the ship was fine. The problem was the atmosphere being generated by our fellow passengers. They were too quiet. See, if it were a guard shuttle, everyone would have been complaining, joking, or smoking. Even the driest Inquisition teams we've been assigned to would have at least done some gear checks or reminded us stupid guardsmen what our job was. The Marines and their scouts just sat there and silently prayed and or meditated or something. No talking, no moving, and hardly any breathing for hours upon hours. You'd think we could just ignore it, but any time one of us made the slightest bit of noise, the entire creepy lot would glare at us like, like well, n- noisy children in a chapel. The silence were on our nerves. There was nothing to do but think about the upcoming mission or stare in the ominous bulk of the vortex bomb, which was making the sort of unbearable or unhearable noises we associated with the wheat geller field. We were all reaching our limit, and it was a race to see if Twitch or Amy would snap first, when Sarge decided that politeness was overrated. He commandeered one of Twitch's camo tarps and hung it across the shuttle interior, uh, walling away all the creepy superhumans except for Grath as a scout. The big guy tried to glare us down by himself, as we all started being as noisy as we damn well pleased, but we had him outnumbered, and Sarge threatened to put a second tarp over him if he kept it up. The remainder of our approach to the Tyranid Hive ship was spent the usual ways. Tink tinkered with Spot 2.0, removing the overweight Skull Probe disguise and trying to get a few of the systems he and Theo hadn't finished clutching together functional. Doc wrote his usual soppy, if I die on this mission, letter to his girlfriend, while Amy and Nubby read over his shoulder and made unhelpful suggestions. Twitch muttered to himself as he imagined hundreds of scenarios involving Tyranids and Orcs. As his mind ran its crookeder than usual circles, he continuously moved gear and explosives between his bag and the massive pile of spares he'd bought. Sarge walked as we frittered away our time and saw that it was good. We'd all suffered a moment of heart failure as Sergeant Rebus tore down the tarp, followed by another when the homemade cluster mine Twitch had been holding hit the floor. The space spring stood there and waited while we picked springs and thanked the Emperor unarmed explosives from under our seats. When the last bomblet had been collected, Rebus informed us that the shuttle was nearing the hive ship and we would be switching to full stealth mode. We were to secure ourselves in our gear, put on our rebreathers, and stay out of his team's way while they deployed. We did as ordered, and a few minutes later, the shuttle ride went from boring to terrifying. The cabin switched to the emergency lights, the air vents stopped flowing, and the gravity deactivated. We floated in our seats for a few seconds, then the first evasive maneuver hit us. Let me tell you, no one thinks about those those grav tied to a shuttle's engine seriously until they're turned off. Instead of the usual little jolts of spillover, they were as long, continuous pulls in seemingly random directions. We felt completely helpless as we bounced and swung in our crash harnesses. Then Tank decided that we might be better if we could see what was coming and anticipate the maneuvers. It was not. 
Who knows what the Marines and Scouts thought when Spot 2.0 drifted past them and entered the cockpit. They didn't actually say anything about it and were already glaring at us for how loudly we were complaining about the turbulence. Anyway, they seemed just as interested as us when Tech Tink projected the drone's vid feed on the front bulkhead. And we all stared at the image of the massive Tyranid bioship looming in front of us and then at the smaller ships swarming around it. It was hard to say if there were more orc fighters or Tyranid flyers, and either way, there was a constant stream of reinforcements rising from the planet and spewing from the hive ship. It was complete chaos. The space around the hive ship was filled with rockets, shells, bioplasma, pyroacid, and millions and millions of millions of tons of wildly spinning debris. And for some reason, we were flying right the fuck into it. Bloody space marines. All of us just sat there and stared, and then when we saw the cause of one of those evasive maneuvers, a speck suddenly grew into a fighter and then zipped past by such a thin margin that we could see the orc piloting it. A split second later, it was followed by a stream of bioplasma and a tyranid interceptor. Doc swallowed, Twitch whimpered, and Amy swore. Variations of that scene repeated dozens and dozens of times as we closed within the hive ship's reach. It's hard to say which was more amazing, the way the scout marine pilot twisted away from every single impact with bare meters to spare, or the fact that none of the hostiles even saw our shuttle, even while nearly colliding with it. Our slow approach to the hive ship through that space battle was a terrifying and humbling reminder that if guardsmen's nerves are steel, space brains are adamantium. Not that we actually had what you might call nerves of steel. All of us were scared shitless. And when the pilot took cover from a pyro-acid barrage behind a landa that was visibly filled with commandos, Twitch went from scared to full-on freaking out, man! When Twitch started gibbering, Sarge barked the orders of Tank and Doc to turn off the projection and prep a trank. But none of us had any, anywhere near the same speed as the panicked demolitions trooper. In a startlingly short amount of time, Twitch had cut his way out of his crash harness and relocated to a more defensible position, leaving a trail of jetpacks floating in the air behind him. Said defensible position turned out to be the small amount of space between the vortex bomb and the seat that held it. Sarge immediately undid his own restraints and launched himself across the shuttle, only to wind up pinned against a pair of unhappy scout marines as the pilot evaded something or other. A rain of jetpacks landed on everyone on that side of the shuttle, guardsmen and marine alike, and Sergeant Gravis had decided that enough was enough. Or sorry, enough was a enough. A space marine's boots adhered to the floor with a deep clang as he left his, sh his seat. Most of us watched in amazement, and the space marine slowly stomped across what the what the shuttle's acceleration meant was actually a wall. Twitch, though, was honestly too busy with his paranoid panic attack to notice until a massive hand snapped out, pulled the detonator from his, and, and pulled the detonator from his grip, that is. Sergeant Gravis had probably thought that removing the detonator would neatly uh, defuse the situation. He was completely wrong, of course, but he did, but if the theft did focus Twitch's attention on him instead of imagining, or imaginary commandos, unfortunately, that attention took the form of a thrown object which adhered to the Space Marine's hand when he tried to bat it away. We, we could practically hear the gears in Sergeant Gravis's head whirring as he re registered the death pack stuck to his palm and the two detonators which had practically materialized in Twitch's hands. The giant in the acid-pocked armor stared into the wild eyes of the demolitions trooper, who was currently lying across a vortex bomb and accusing of being one of them and decided that the intimidation and force were not viable options. So in the gentlest voice, a half-ton hybrid of man and tank and manage, he tried to reason. 
Gravis started by asking Twitch to calm down. That worked about as well as you'd expect. The Space Marine then tried explaining that there were no enemies in the shuttle and everyone here was Twitch's ally. Twitch responded by chucking another debt pack at him and screaming, That's what they all say, then the mask comes off! That seemed to confuse Gravis, so Doc helpfully explained that he'd just been accused of being an orc in disguise. Gravis pointed out that Twitch was obviously insane, which won him a- another debt pack and a scream of, They all say that too! At that point, Gravis must have been losing confidence in his strategy, because he turned at, he turned as asked the rest of us what to do. Nubby, Amy, and Tank all simultaneously made unhelpful suggestions, and Sarge was busy, busy clinging onto Sergeant Rebus's seat, as yet another evasive maneuver tried to fling him from across the shuttle. Doc told the Marine that he was doing fine. This sort of argument was pretty much standard operating procedure if no one managed to trank Twitch before he got the explosives out. He suggested that Gravis continue by taking off his helmet and proving that he wasn't an orc. Twitch agreed that the orc should show us his real face, so he did. Tink's shout of, What happened to your... was cut off by Doc's hand. Amy cackled until Nubby pointed out that the Marine still had most of his hair. Sarge asked what was going on, and Twitch admitted that Gravis probably wasn't an orc. Probably. In the incredibly, painfully awkward silence that followed, Sergeant Gravis put his helmet back on, his scout marine glared at us, and Twitch asked if someone would please help me get off the vortex bomb, I'm stuck! Gravis collected both Twitch and Sarge, who was still clinging to the meditating Sergeant Rebus for dear life, and deposited them both in their seats. As the marine stomped around, he talked to us, giving us a morale-boosting lecture he claimed was given to him as an acolyte on his first boarding mission. We were instructed not to worry about what we couldn't control, and to focus on remembering glorious victories of the chapter, or in our case, the Cadian regiments. Nubby asked what was so special about those nutters. This caused a pause in the motivational speech. It was eventually established that our regiment wasn't from Cadia, Catechan, Krieg, Elysia, Maccabius, Mordian, Talern, Vestroyer, any other world famous for its contribution to the Guard. Furthermore, our regiment had never accomplished anything other than serving as cannon fodder for more important Imperial forces. There were no glorious victories for us at all. At an indignant objection from our markswoman, this was adjusted to no glorious victories for anyone except Amy and her Nubby regiment of Nubby Nubs. Sergeant Gravis stared at us and asked what in the Emperor's name we were doing in the fucking Inquisition. Sarge sighed, picked at a stray debt pack which had adhered to his sleeve, and admitted that not a day went by that he didn't ask himself that same damn question. The rest, the rest of the approach to the hive ship passed without incident. At least as far as his passengers were concerned, that is. The pilot definitely had to dodge a whole lot of something over the last few minutes, though. Thank the Emperor. Tank never turned the video feed back on. At the word, at a word from the pilot, Sergeant Rebus and his four scout marines sprang out of their seats and positioned themselves around the vortex bomb. A few moments later, there was a squishy impact, and the stealth the stealth shuttle's rear door opened to reveal a pulsating wall of flesh stuff. The scouts painted it with something. Rebus stabbed it with his power sword, and a gap was pried open. To our disgust, disgust. The five marine boarding party then smeared themselves with the juices running from the gap. Once they and the vortex bomb were good and covered, they pulled on some chameleon-line cloaks that probably that looked far better than any that looked far better than any that had ever been issued to us in the lowly guardsmen, and climbed through. Sergeant Gravis planted a probe-looking device in the gap behind them and sealed it with some big staple things and some chemical spray. When the gap was closed, we heard Gravis and Rebus do a calm check and schedule the pickup. Then the shuttle door 
was silently closed, and we started drifting away. From docking to undocking, the whole boarding operation took just under five minutes. It was the most impressive display of efficient professionalism we'd ever seen. But I'm not sure any of... I'm not sure any of us drew a breath during the whole thing. We all prayed to the Emperor that we wouldn't have to be on the shuttle during their pickup. There's a moral about getting what you wish for in there sometimes. Somewhere. Some place. Somewhere. Sergio, take us home before I have a stroke from reading too much. <clears throat> we descended to the planet alongside the hail of spores spewing from the hive ship. It went a lot faster and required fewer evasive maneuvers than our approach had, which was good for our freight nerves. Now that Sergeant Rebus and his team of super su suicidal supermen had departed, Gravis and his scouts became a little more chatty. The scout piloting the shuttle brought the gravity up enough to keep us in our seats and told Gravis that he was starting scans. Gravis brought out an oversized data slate and began staring at it with the other scout. They didn't seem to think that we really need to take part in the discussion, but when Tank sent his drone to hover over their shoulders, Gravis decided it would be easier to let us participate. Gravis and his two scouts were searching the battlefield below us for signs of zoanthropes. Specifically, they were looking for big old bolts of warp lightning, which could be traced back to the Xenocyker firing them. That sounds fairly simple, but given how far up we still were and how much of a mess this battlefield was, we decided that it was pointless to try and help. While the marines strained their eyes, the rest of us concentrated the sort of things us lowly guardsmen find important, namely weather. Terrain and hostile positions. These turned out to be acid rain, a wasteland with giant spiky rocks and everywhere. In short, it wasn't a place we wanted to get anywhere near, much less drop onto via a grav chute. Nubby and Tink started the argument by complaining about the suicidal nature of the mission and suggesting that we just lie on the report, which prompted the scout marine to tell us all about how to grow a backbone and a proper sense of fighting duty. Amy told him where he could stick his backbone and sense of duty, and things went downhill from there. Sadly, this wasn't a real good fight going. We'd only managed to get a bit of name-calling and a few anatomically yeah. improbable threats, before Gravis finally spotted some warp lightning. Lighting? That that should be lightning, but it's like ch it's misspelled chain of memories. Lighting. Oh my god, she's back! It's lighting that from chain of memories! Uh, the PTSD. This that is really be, um, good. That would be exactly how that her other form would be spelled too. Warp lighting with the dash. <laughs> warp lighting. Warp dash lighting. <laughs> this was quite fun. I look forward to seeing how it concludes. Yeah, I like the uh, the funny space marines just being like mind boggled. Mm-hmm. I uh, I'm hoping that we get some good orc dialogue, because I liked the the orc dialogue that was in the I can't remember what chapter it was in. Um, was it the pi? They're orc pirates, I believe, or maybe they were just regular pirates. But I remember it being funny. Free Buddhas is the word you're looking for. Yeah, 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 the free Buddhas. Yeah, the free Buddhas. Yeah, because yeah, I remember the free Buddhas before. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. Also, uh, the the mission the the mission accomplished that they uses. I I I didn't want to take the time to go and grab that image, but I was gonna post it in the server when we hit ten thousand views. For those who hadn't seen our Twitter post, we are now above ten thousand. You could have just googled George Bush mission accomplished, and I promise you, it probably would have picked up. I, yeah, I I didn't feel like quick. putting the effort in. 
So how long do you think it'll be before they meet Rebute Gilliman in All Guardsmen? Probably never. Considering they're like old head Warhammer fans, they probably hate the existence of Rebute Gilliman in, pro- <laughs> in modern 40k. Probably. Probably. Alright, well, I look forward to the next reading. Yeah. We love you. Next time. I don't love you, though. Dab, dab, dab. Yeah, 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 fuck you, yeah.